You're listening to Podnosis. A lot of communities experience illnesses differently. A patient can come in and say, tengo mal de aire. Like, tengo mal de aire, it could be I have pain, generalized pain, or I had a paralysis. So now, if I don't know that, then I don't know to work up a stroke, maybe. Right? And I think that's where the cultural competence piece really comes in when they're relating their personal experience, their culture, and expressing, hey, this is what I have. And if you don't understand it as a provider and connect with that, then your ability to diagnose them properly, your ability to treat them properly will completely be missed. That was Sarah Lopez talking with Pierce's Annie Berkey about barriers to equitable care. Stay with us. We'll hear more from her soon. You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about how healthcare plans can stay competitive with the Affordable Care Act. But first up, let's talk about the need for equitable care. Population health and value-based care are hot topics amongst doctors. Population health is defined as the health outcomes of a group of individuals. For decades, marginalized populations within the U.S. have shown poorer health outcomes than their white counterparts. Take Hispanic and Latino Americans, for example. They are the largest minority population in the country, at 19% of the U.S. population in 2021 but it's likely they're around 30% now because since then, Latinos have contributed 54% of the population growth in the U.S. Latino Americans are four times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID than white Americans. Zocalo Health is a new population health company serving Latino communities in California and Texas. The company uses a value-based care model as opposed to a fee-for-service model. This model has been highlighted as one possible way to address health inequities. In this structure, all financial risk is transferred from payer to provider. Providers like Zocalo then pay for care their patients require, but also keep the savings their patients stay healthy. Sarah Lopez recently started as the community's first Latina chief medical officer. She spoke with Annie Berkey about how population health systems and value-based care can address the needs of marginalized populations. Here they are. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for inviting me here today. Yeah, so just to start, um, as a medical provider, what do you think the COVID-19 pandemic revealed about the care that Latino communities receive in the U.S.? I think the thing that, you know, wow, the COVID pandemic, aren't we still living it? Um, One of the things that it really highlighted was Uh, really the discrepancy and the lack of access that certain communities have to the healthcare system and the quality of healthcare that uh, some communities have. And that's really what ended up happening. It highlighted that Black and Brown communities didn't have access to high-quality care when it really mattered, and that they didn't have access to high-quality information to really be able to have a trusted uh, messenger um, 
that they could get information from, that they could trust the information to be able to know what do I need to do next, right? And I think, you know, really what it highlighted is that we have two healthcare systems, right? And it delivers different qualities of care and access for different groups. And it really depends on what group we fall into. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to start is like the dissemination of knowledge and information. And um, it's not new that information is being released into the world in English and then also in Spanish. That was kind of step one of like integrating these different disparate parts of the health system. Um, Step two is health systems finally realizing, oh, we need to employ uh, Spanish-speaking providers, making sure that patients feel connected with their provider on that level. Um, but when I spoke with the co-founders of Zocalo Health, they made it very clear that like those two steps are not enough. Can you talk about like what is the next step? What is step three? What is step four? What do we need to do to make sure that Spanish-speaking populations really feel supported by American healthcare? You know, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of times if you think back historically, how, how is healthcare delivered and how did we engage in particular with the Latino community? We didn't have Spanish speaking providers and we really didn't even have until recently translational services, right? We didn't have translational services offered. And so who was making the translations? It was the kids, mm-hmm. you know, it was the grandkids, it was an a nephew, right? Some friend that would come into the doctor's office to do the translation. And if you can only imagine how private some of these conversations are, and you're having these private conversations, right? About your health issues, your wellness with your child there or your grandchild there. And they're the ones that are are translating for you. And so how much, how honest do you, you know, do you open up and what is that trust building relationship look like. So I think the language was this first step, but really what we're missing is this cultural awareness um, that's still lacking in the healthcare system. You know, a lot of uh, communities experience uh, illnesses differently. And I think one of the things that's highlighted is that, you know, a patient can come in and say, tengo mal de aire, or tengo empacho, or tengo nervios. And if that provider doesn't understand Tengo empacho means like I have some kind of GI upset, like some GI issues. That translation doesn't translate well, and they can totally be blown off. In contrast, also like tengo mal de aire, it could be I have pain, generalized pain, or I had a paralysis. So now if I don't know that, then I don't know to work up a stroke maybe, right? And I think that's where the cultural competence piece really comes in. It's like when they're when they're relating their personal experience, their culture and expressing, hey, this is what I have. And if you don't understand it as a provider and connect with that and understand what what do they mean by that, right? That translational piece isn't there. Then your ability to diagnose them properly will be missed. And therefore your ability to treat them properly will completely be missed. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I think when we're talking about this salad bowl, that is the United States of America. Um, it's really easy for people to people outside the community to look at Latino Americans and think they're a monolith. They're Latino, they're Spanish speakers. But when I spoke with co-founders Eric Cardenas and Marisa Hardin, they emphasized that Latino Americans are not a cultural monolith. Um, can you talk about why that misconception can be especially dangerous in healthcare? So I think part of the reason, and it goes back to 
the whole issue of translation because Latinos speak Spanish, right? And we, we have that commonality. The assumption then is a lot of things are the same. But if, if you really think about Latinos in, you know, in the LA area, right? Where many come from South America, Central America, um, Mexico, then that is a very different lived experience than if, let's say, you go to the East Coast and they're coming from Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, right? Or Florida, they're coming from Cuba. Each each group has a different lived experience and the way they communicate um, and the way they express themselves culturally about their health, their wellness, and their perceptions, how they integrate within the community can potentially be different. And so if we don't understand that and we don't recognize that there is differences here, that's where we actually miss the trust building. Yeah, I think when I spoke with Marissa, she was talking about, um, she had this great phrase where she just said, like, for Latinos, healthcare lives in the family. It is the family. And I think that also relates to the health advocate um, position that you have within Zocalo Health. And my understanding is that is actually inspired by a position, um, which I'm totally going to butcher this, but promotores de salud. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about where that origin is and, and how you make sure that um, that health advocate is really integrated at every step of care? So promotoras de salud or promotores de salud are actually um, very much so part of, they come from the experiences in and throughout Latin America, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, where healthcare providers and resources are limited, right? So you know, for since the 1950s, these these community leaders, these people that were very well known within the community, the neighbor that knew everybody, they really started connecting themselves and being that bridge between the healthcare system and the community. And in the 1980s, they came here to the United States, um, really as part of a wave of uh, migrant and seasonal farm farm workers in the 80s, right? So that's really when the U.S. got exposed to. Uh, promotores de salud. And I was lucky enough early on in my undergrad career and in medical school to work with organizations like MPNA Green and Latino Health Access, who um, are focused and trained uh, promotoras and really connect with the community to understand that a promotora is someone that helps build that trust relationship with the health organization and with the community. Right. And brings questions from the community to the healthcare organization or institution and, and then information from the healthcare organization back to the community. And so there's this constant dialogue that's happening. And at Zocalo, we, we basically created our healthcare delivery model around having a promotora de salud assigned to every single one of our patients because we recognize how important that is, um, to make sure that each patient has someone that understands them culturally, can really get down to understanding and connecting with their family dynamic is, their home life dynamic is, um, and to be able to help us understand that better. So as we're providing them, you know, information, resources, education, medication, it's appropriate and aligned with with the person, right? Because at Zocalo, we're not treating we're not treating diagnoses, right? We're working with people. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think, can I go into a little bit of 
Yeah, please. One of our healthcare models. Patients, we know Latinos uh, have uh, a very high percentage rate of getting uh, diabetes, right? It's almost one in, in two Latinos will develop diabetes in their lifetime. But when you really take a look at that, you, you realize it's because usually what happens is that families, right? Parents, the parents will have diabetes and then eventually the children have, will have diabetes. And so one of the things that we've started to look at when we built our management programs is how do you actually bring in the family and how do you bring in the primary, the person that does the primary cooking and grocery shopping to also help educate them and help create uh, an infrastructure for them to learn how do I, you know, build healthy meals for my family within within what we our resources? How do I make sure as a family we're more active, right? So it's not just that one individual person that we're telling them what to do, but it's the whole family. My father has diabetes, and I will tell you that. I don't believe he's ever really cooked for himself. It's all been my mother, right? So if you don't bring my mother into the conversation, yeah. he's never going to eat differently, right? He's he's going to eat whatever she puts in front of him. And so it was having to have that conversation with my mother about like, how do we restructure my dad's diet? And that's when it really started changing, right? He also yeah. eats in here and there, but it changed because we brought her in. I know that uh, you also very much enjoy podcasts and enjoy this specific podcast. Um, the NPR podcast of Visibilia recently reported on a group of psychotherapy patients who were survivors of the Cambodian genocide. And over 90% of the group was erroneously placed on antipsychotic medications. And it was taking place because oftentimes um, non-Cambodian doctors were misunderstanding their patients' reports of ghosts. They assumed this was some kind of hallucination. Um, only when a Cambodian psychotherapist met with these patients was it made clear that the miscommunication was one of language and culture and that the patients were actually suffering from insomnia and sleep paralysis brought on by severe trauma. Um, so what do you think stories like that reveal about the potential successes of redesigning health systems to reflect the mul multiplicity of American realities and maybe in the case of Zocalo Health, like reflecting the fact that healthcare is in the family? You know, I think this really comes back to cultural awareness and why it's so important to have to understand that in with many Latinos, we have a very similar thing instead of seeing ghosts and some do we have nervios. Hmm. And that term is very common and it gets dismissed as, oh, this folklore, di you know, complaint, oh, they have nervios, right? Oh, everybody has nervios. And it really comes, if you really think about it, it comes from trauma that a lot of uh, Latinos have experienced, many of them leaving their, their country of origin and the, the trauma that they experienced trying to get here to the United States. And it's not discussed. It's almost hidden sometimes. And, and that trauma becomes generational. And, and what really was interesting, we see that in, in Latino communities, right, that have experienced trauma, but we haven't identified it. They come in, patients come in and say, tengo nervios, and then they just get dismissed, right? And so we're not actually identifying what does nervios mean? Uh, how, how, how are you experiencing that? What, how can I help you? to really parse that out and then be able to provide you, 
you know, the right care that you need as an individual, and then really taking a look at your family and seeing like, how can we take care of the family? Um, And that really, that podcast for me, they talked about, you know, a, a, a community, the Cambodian community, and so much of it resonated with some of the lived experiences of Latino communities. And, and it's like, oh, it's nervios. Absolutely. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, this totally makes sense. But what, why do I know that? I know that because I am a Mexican from immigrant parents and have lots of relatives who really have lived traumas and experiences um, and who talk about nervios. And I understand it not as I'm crazy or I'm, I'm nervous, but really understand it as being this part of this trauma that they experienced, right? And the triggers that cause this trauma to be relive, relived. So I, I think that's why at Zocalo, you know, when we, when we build our teams, we're building people that are culturally competent, mm-hmm. that will not dismiss uh, a patient when they bring something up like this, that they'll actually dig deeper to really understand what does that person mean and how do we support them and how do we help them and their family uh, to better understand what, you know, what they're displaying and what symptoms they're, they're complaining of and then, and then provide that support to them and the family. And I just want to say that we are not, being paid by Invisibilia. <laughs> we just both enjoy the podcast and it um I would recommend it because I, I think it does prove that point of it's the the power of dismissing someone um and simplifying their experience. I think when you see that providers only have 14 minutes to speak with a patient, it dismissals happen without a second thought. Um, and I know that you used to work for some big providers like Kaiser Permanente, um, who use a fee-for-service model. And of course, many, many, many providers use a fee-for-service model. And so I'm wondering now that you work for Zocalo Health, which uses a value-based care system, how would you say the working environment and your relationships with your patients are, how are they different now? So at Zocalo Health, we've actually launched a direct-to-consumer membership option um, that focuses really on eliminating some of those common barriers. And the difference now is that our members really, when they come on, we have them meet with our physician who does, who can spend between 15 minutes if that's what the patient has. And that's the time that they have to meet with us to up to an hour, right? So we have the time to really dig deep. If it's something where it's a chronic condition that we need to manage long-term, then we really dig deep in, you know, who, what's your social structure look like? Um, who is part of your support group at home? Do you work? Do you go to school? What are your other responsibilities? At Zocalo, we're resourcing the, the person and not just the diagnosis. Because at, at the end of the day, physicians, you know, they really do want to help their patients. Um, and, and I think they're finally understanding you know, these organizations are finally understanding, whole, you know, taking care of the whole person is really where it's at. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, congratulations on your new position at Zocalo. Thank you. That was Sarah Lopez and Annie Berkey. 
enrollment on the Affordable Care Act exchanges has skyrocketed over the past year. This is because of enhanced subsidies and long special enrollment windows due to the pandemic. But as the population in the individual market grows, so has the interest from insurers, many of whom experienced significant losses in the early days of the exchanges. What can payers do to stay ahead of the competition? Well, next, we're going to hear from Paige Minnemeyer as she spoke with experts to address this question at the Fierce JPM Week earlier this year. Here's a glimpse into that panel discussion. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm here with David Merritt, Senior Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, Lisa Lau, President of Individual and Family Plans at Cigna, and Alessa Kwan, Executive Vice President and Chief Insurance Officer at Oscar Health. Panelists, thank you all so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. To kick things off, can each of you talk a little bit about how you've seen the ACA market evolve over time and maybe how have your organizations adapted to those changes? Well, I'm happy to kick it off. Um, You know, Blue Cross Blue Shield has been committed to the individual market for decades, actually long before the ACA. Um, Consumers and patients have looked to us really as trusted partners to provide them with affordable access to quality care. And we continue to serve millions of consumers every day. Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of ups and downs over the last 10 years with the ACA, but the good news is the market has really stabilized and Blue Cross Blue Shield serves more Americans now than ever before in this market, more than 5 million Americans. That's actually about one third of the people that are actually in the ACA market. Um, We have consumers have access to um, Blue's plans in 49 states plus D.C., 97% of Americans have a choice of a blue plan when they're choosing their ACA coverage. So we've been committed to the ACA from the beginning. We're serving individual customers today and have for a long time. Absolutely continue to do so in the future. And we're just thrilled that we've gotten to a point where there are, you know, many choices, solid benefits, and really good coverage for so many Americans. I'll build on that a little bit Um, from a Cigna perspective, uh, similar to what David mentioned. um, We've also been in the ACA consistently, actually predate the ACA as well. uh, And we're pretty proud of that. It has been a pretty volatile um, space, you know, over the years. And I think what we're seeing now from an evolution perspective is a couple of things. One is there is more of that stability in the market. Um, So, you know, we've had a a varying degree of competitive environment, if you think about it that way, enrollment. Um, From a competitive environment, you know, a lot of people came in early, a lot of people left. We got to a point where uh, in 2018, the average number of carriers in a market was 2.5, right? Pretty low, and that's average. Um, We were in some markets where we were the only plan in play. Now that's gone up to about six on average. So very different environment in terms of from our perspective, competitive environment, but from a consumer perspective, plan choice, right? There's a lot more options out there. And I think the stability of the marketplace and the fact that there there is more choice out there has given consumers more confidence in the space. Um, So, you know, we've been seeing record enrollment. We saw that last year. This year, we've seen the numbers go up again over on an overall um, sector basis. So uh, I think that's a lot of what you're seeing is stabilization, growth, more competitive offerings in the marketplace, uh, and people just getting smarter about, um, you know, how to understand the, the ACA space and the plan options out there. Yeah, I agree with what every everyone has said. And um, our we're not clearly as old as the Blues or <laughs> Cigna here at Oscar. And our founding was actually timed with the passing of the of the ACA. And 
uh, we first launched in 2014, which was the year that the plans were first originally offered on the exchanges. Um, so we have been in the ACA since its beginning. Um, and we're we're also quite proud of, of that fact. Uh, I recently saw a statistic that in 2012, I think it was, there were 24 new uh, entrants in the ACA space, sort of startups, if you will. And uh, as of 2023, there's one. Uh, that had entered in that period. And, and so we've seen quite a bit as, as both David and Lisa mentioned, um, instability in the market in terms of people coming in, going out, coming back in, but also, um, there have been, you know, as everyone knows questions, will the ACA remain? Will, uh, people continue to be subsidized? Will enhanced subsidies continue, et cetera. And I do think that overall the country and, uh, and legislation is more committed to the market as well, which I think uh, is is also um, helping provide some of that uh, that stability. I think the point that Lisa made as well um, is that uh, consumers are more apt to join it now too. It's better known. Uh, I mean, I think there were times when people were trying to attract people to the market generally, uh, and uh, there's a lot of people that now are much more familiar with it. They know that the market is there and they're pleased that they have choice, uh, I think, in, in the market. And that's certainly um, something that, uh, you know, we're all happy to, to see, right? That, that that's what we're here to do is to provide affordable access to healthcare for for Americans. And, uh, and I think that uh, the competitors that are in the market are continuing to do that. Lisa touched on this. There's more participation on the exchanges from insurers now, as well as, you know, record highs in enrollment, especially we're kind of wrapping up the current open enrollment period and, you know, numbers are already tracking way ahead this year as well. How does that maybe force you to think differently about enrollment window like this and, and kind of reaching out to members? I'm happy to jump in on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's made it more complex, obviously, from uh plan perspective with the the level of competitiveness, right? It's definitely changed the dynamic there. But I think the level of enrollment is really a positive, both from a plan perspective, but from a societal perspective, right? We have a lot more people who are getting um, coverage and who are getting healthcare. So that's a positive. As I think about how you come to market in this different and more complicated uh, and competitive environment, it's the things you typically think about. You know, How do you design your plans and how are you doing it in such a way that's meeting people where they are meeting whole health person needs, or I'm sorry, whole person health needs and, um, you know, personalizing it, right? So how, how do you design your product? How do you price it? We all know that price is the, you know, key factor, one of the key factors as people shop in the ACA space, that goes without saying. And then of course, the third one is how do you sell your plans? How do you distribute it? And um, there's a big, you know, it is it is a complex product to understand. So how do you ensure that you've got advocates out there who are helping simplify it for consumers? They understand how to think about things like price. We know that price isn't just premium. Price is including your deductible and out-of-pocket max and all of those different components. So you know that's really what we focused on is how do we create plans that meet people where they are? How do we price and drive an affordability but still deliver good benefits? And then how do you get the message out there? Uh, and I think you know things like navigators, for example, being funded again is starting to help draw people into the market and also understand what their options are. Uh, just even things like understanding the fact that they, they qualify for a subsidy, right? So that, that's kind of how I think about the dynamics of the current market, both with the higher enrollment and um, you know, higher competitive environment. 
Yeah, I, I would add to that, you know, for those who get their insurance on their own, it can be a real challenge to navigate and often afford. Um, that's why Blue Cross Blue Shield is so committed to really effective education on the benefits of Blue, as well as committed to offering the best possible coverage, really at the best possible price. But I think what has really helped um, every person in the ACA market is the ability to get payment assistance, you know, for premiums, for, for cost sharing, out-of-pocket expenses. Those subsidies have been critical for folks who can't afford or aren't part of a, of a group plan. And especially the last two years with the upheaval from COVID, um, we strongly supported the congressional extension of the additional help during COVID. We think that the message of affordability and the benefits that these ACA plans offer is a really effective way to educate consumers on their choices, uh, no matter what market they're in. So it's affordability and the coverage benefits that really do sell itself. Yeah, I think that um, the point about the the affordability and not just in what the premium they pay is, but also the the knowledge of exactly how much it's going to cost them out of pocket, either throughout the year or at a given visit is very, very important to people that are, are in the ACA. Um, I also think that the education that that David uh, mentioned, I think is is super important. And I, I would say the thing that we've tried to do um, through this open enrollment and those previous is to really, you know, focus on the thing that we think we do best, uh, which is our member engagement and utilizing the tools that we've built um, in order to, you know, get their attention to provide, you know, that direct uh, education, that direct support uh, for them to navigate their plan, to understand what coverage they have, um, how much things could cost to help direct their care to, um, you know, equal quality or higher quality providers that have lower cost, um, et cetera, utilizing the data and the technology that we have. And I think that that's been really um, important for us. So it's not just attracting like the new people um, to our own plan, but also in retaining the members that we have, right? So we find that those people that are with us who are digitally engaged with the tools that we have to help them navigate their um, healthcare, um, they tend to have higher retention rates as, as you would expect. Um, and, uh, you know, we're pretty pleased that we have like 42% of our members are monthly active users of the technology and, um, uh, tools that we've, we've provided to them. And like, we use that to try to build trust with them, trust with Oscar, but also with the marketplace itself. Um, and we do find that they listen to us, right? Like 76% of people who, uh, search for a new doctor, um, using our app actually take our recommendation, right? Um, over, you know, family, friends, which is also a, another way clearly to typically find a, a provider. So um, I think that, you know, we want individuals to be comfortable with the healthcare that they're getting. Um, and I think that it goes back to the earlier point we made also about the evolution of the market that even the, not are only the the competitors in the market more comfortable with the stability, but so are um, so are the individuals that are buying the the products. And I think that companies like ours um, are helping to, to make that possible for them. Great. Well, I want to thank the three of you for, for joining me and sharing your insights today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss clinical informatics and how to avoid errors in electronic health records. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.